Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hi, it's Susan. I know, I know, I know. Last episode, I promised you a brand new one this week. If 2020 has taught us anything, it should be that the only certain thing in life is that something surprising can come along and mess up the best of plans. We decided this week to follow up the last episode of Victoria Woodhull, who quite honestly really didn't qualify for the presidency of the United States. We thought we'd combine two mini episodes from 2016 to talk about two women who did have the qualities necessary to be president of the United States. First is Belva Lockwood, who ran for the presidency in 1884 and 1888 and is considered the first woman to run for president of the United States. The second woman that we're going to be talking about today is Shirley Chisholm. In 1972, Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman to run on a major party ticket for president in the United States, and also the first female nominee that the Democratic Party ever had. We'll be back in two weeks. We're all ready to have this conversation. We're both very excited. As a matter of fact, this subject is someone that Beckett had put on the master list before she even came and talked to me about co-hosting the show. That's how long Beckett Graham has been waiting to talk about our next subject. See, we have to wait, too. But until then, God willing and the creek don't rise, toss some salt, spit. No, probably don't spit. It's disgusting. Just cross everything. We'll be back in two weeks. On with the show. And here's your 30-second summary. Belva Lockwood used her determination, her brains, and not unimportantly, the press, to break new ground for generations to come. First, as a lawyer arguing cases before the Supreme Court, and then as one of the first female candidates for the office of United States President in 1884. Surprise! This is Beckett. I'm by myself today. Last episode, Susan and I told you the story of Victoria Woodhull, the first woman to run for president in the United States. But I'm here today to continue the story of Women's March to the White House with another candidate from long ago, Belva Lockwood, who ran for the office in 1884 and 1888. She appeared officially on ballots and was over the age of 35 when she ran, so in some minds, Belva, and not Victoria Woodhull, was the first female candidate for president. Let's go ahead and get into it. Belva Ann Bennett was born on October 24, 1830, in Royalton, New York, the second child of the five born to Lewis and Hannah Bennett. Her upbringing reminds me a lot of the sisters of Almanza Wilder in Farmer Boy, so they're on an upstate New York farm, expected to be quite responsible and self-reliant. She was sent to the local school whenever it was in session, and at 14, taking the exam for a teaching certificate and becoming a schoolmistress, just like Laura Ingalls, if you remember, who was 15 at the time she got her teaching certificate. It was part of a deal with her father, so she'd teach the summer term at the grammar school and used her wages to pay for tuition at a girl's high school. Otherwise, I think she wouldn't have gone. Belva wished for college, and there were a few places she could have gone, but Papa absolutely forbid it. That is enough school for a girl. So she followed the expected and traditional path for young women, and at 18, she married Uriah McNall, age 22, who farmed and also operated a sawmill. And here's what Belva said about marriage. Quote, marriage to an ordinary woman is the end of her personality or of her individual thought and action forever after. She's represented by him and becomes a sort of domestic non-entity. It's not very rosy. She had a daughter named Laura and kept up her reading and wrote papers for club meetings and little articles for the paper. And that might have been where her story ended had Uriah not died when Belva was only 22. 
22, with a three-year-old daughter to support. Well, thank goodness I have that teaching experience to draw on. So she applied for a teaching position, and then she found out that the district in question openly paid male teachers more than double what they gave the female teachers. They offered her $8 a week, which is about $250, but he is getting 20 to her 8 And the rationale was, well, he's going to save for a house or support a wife and family. You're just marking time till you get married. You're just handing your wages over to your father anyway, or buying bonnets. It's just extra money. It's not household money. Um, Yeah, actually, it is the household income, not that it's any of your business. You know what I mean? So she didn't take that job. She made a plan. Laura went to live with Grandma and Grandpa. Belva sold some land that Uriah had owned and the mill, which may in fact have killed him. I think he died in a sawmill accident. And she set out to get a degree at what was then called Genesee Wesleyan University, but it's now Syracuse. Pretty famous. Her concentrations were science, math, history, the U.S. Constitution, and political economy. And you know how it is when you get to college, you get exposed to new beliefs, concepts you hadn't been aware of there in your small town life in what was swirling around upstate New York during the 1850s. Abolition, temperance, and equal rights for women, the big three. We talk often on this show about how these movements intertwined and moved forward together and held each other back. Um, These, all of these, became another area of deep study and passion, along with a law class she had taken. She was away from her daughter this whole time, by the way. I think it was just a matter of having to make some hard decisions for the greater good, I think. At 27... Belva graduated from college, and with her new credentials, she became the girls' division head of the Lockport Union School. In this scenario, there were seven elementary schools and three middle schools and one high school called the Union School. Most of you will probably recognize this model, though not so much here in Kansas City anymore. It's really sad. Where the first question is, where are you sending your kids to school? That is infuriating and a subject for another day. Belva met Susan B. Anthony, who shared her views on expanded education for girls and her belief in equality of opportunity for women in general. This is where the two great minds met very early in her career. Belva introduced some radical ideas during her term at the Union School. Calisthenics for girls. I don't know what that is. You say, sure, you know, you do. Jumping jacks, sit-ups, push-ups, stretches, chin-ups on the bar. All the things I remember from the president's physical fitness program from the 1970s, which, no certificate for me, I still cannot do one pull-up. For people used to their girls maybe walking two by two for exercise, all decorous, all this grunting and sweating was hair raising. You see it all over women's literature. I'm I'm reminded of Joe March from Little Women, who says she's too old to run at 16, for example. Too bad, you know, healthy minds need strong bodies to walk around in. She It's like the end. There's no more discussion. And public speaking. When are the girls ever going to need that? Confidence never goes amiss, was her point. She carried her point, in fact. She continued from this radical start to insist on practical and equal education for girls. What if they're widowed? What if they are put into dire straits and they need it? They should be educated to be independent human beings. But though she was well-respected and quite good at her job, again, she was faced with 
gross inequities in pay compared to her male colleagues. So she left for a couple of stints as headmistress slash principal, I don't know the official name, of two private girls' academies. And right at the end of the Civil War, the 35-year-old Belva moved to Washington, D.C. Her daughter, Laura, was away at boarding high school, and Belva thought she'd move closer to where the action was. Equal rights was really igniting a fire within her, not just her. I mean, it is sizzling all over the Northeast, especially. With her sister, with the epic name of Inferno, she opened a school for girls to keep the lights on, you know, uh, McNall's Female Academy, which less than a year later was simply McNall's Academy because in a stroke of radicalism, Belva turned her school into one of the first fully co-educational high schools in the country. She was one of the founding members of the Universal Franchise Association, which was working openly in the public space to get a constitutional amendment passed to get women the vote. And when she was excluded from any political meetings because she was a woman, she found a workaround and became a credentialed journalist, a member of the National Women's Press Association, and just walked in with her notebook and pencil, to which I say, if the rules are that dumb, find a way around. (laughs) The people she met during her work on this issue, especially the journalists, uh, her network, I should say, today, I guess, shaped how her life began to run from now on. At 38, Belva married Ezekiel Lockwood, a dentist and Baptist preacher who was 67 years old. That is a 29-year age gap, if the math is eluding you. But more importantly, more importantly, he seems like quite the modern fellow. You want to be a lawyer? Here's the books you need. Community organizing? Where do I show up? He was all for women's rights and really welcomed the kind of equal partnership, both intellectual and and financial that they had together. He was a pretty rare bird, I must say, in this time. In addition to the school, which her husband helped her with, she had all kinds of other jobs. She was the person in charge for booking the halls, the lecture halls. And of course, you can put in whoever you want. And a lot of temperance and women's rights issues got their forums in the halls that she rented out. She also worked in claims court, kind of um, as an agent, particularly in the area of Civil War pensions, which is a legal department. You didn't need to be a member of the bar to practice this kind of law and be an advocate to get back pay and that kind of thing. She wrote and delivered speeches on women's rights. She wrote articles on education for women. She was a master of the press, inside and out. People really liked and respected her. She somehow found time to have her second baby, another little girl named Jessie, who I'm sorry to say died before her second birthday, which during this time was common enough, but is still very sad. Belva wanted to become a credentialed lawyer. The most traditional path was to read law with an experienced lawyer for a period of years as an apprentice or assistant, but no man was willing to risk his own career to take her on to his staff in that way. Although there was somebody that was willing to tutor her and uh, help her study kind of in the background. So that's useful. So law school must be the thing, right? Columbia Law School had just opened. They needed some students, right? And hey, the president is an old friend of my husband's. So she applied and was told that, no, thank you, ma'am. You would be too much of a distraction for all the young men. Seriously? Seriously? So at 40, she applied to National University Law School, which did accept Belva and 14 other women, including the now adult daughter, Laura McNall. Super progressive, you think? Ah, but get this. The lectures were co-ed, but the recitations, where the ladies actually had to speak with their own mouths in front of people, those were female only. 
Nevertheless, the male students raised such a stink about attending classes with women that the school sort of retracted their offer and said, well, we will teach you, I guess, but only in a separate program, ladies only. There was great mockery, it seems like, and a lot of indelicate speech about the lady students, and I'm sorry to say that most of them bailed almost immediately. Laura and a couple of friends stuck it out for a year, but by the end of the two-year program, only Belva and one other woman finished the program at all. (sighs) Okay, so we're done, right? Hand us our paper. Not so fast. The dudes don't want you to be on the stage with them at graduation. It would devalue their degree to get it at the same time as you. So we're realists, right? Fine. Just hand my diploma to me. Hand it to me. Actually, you haven't done enough work for your degree, so we're not going to give it to you. This is a quote from her that I think is quite useful to put into a situation like this. Defeats are always advantageous if they only bend the spirit and do not break it. Yes, well, they bent her because without this diploma, she couldn't be admitted to the bar. And without that, she couldn't really practice law, except small claims and the advocate things that she was already doing, not the constitutional law she'd been studying for all this time. Twice, and before two different committees, she took the three-day examination and it got put in a drawer. Frustrating. You got to think, how are you going to overcome this? How are you going to overcome this? She went off on a canvassing and public speaking tour for Horace Greeley, who was running for president, and did a great job, wrote lots of articles for newspapers, including one called The Women of Washington, which was pretty much a pointed reminder to everyone that there are intelligent women just itching to get into the public realm, and they needed to be given an opportunity. Several judges notified her that they themselves would recognize her credentials anyway, so she's welcome to come argue cases in their courts. She was really very well thought of professionally by anyone who could just get past that pesky fact that she was a woman. So she brought a lawsuit in one of these friendly courts, and the novelty factor alone made her a widely reported on figure. And unlike our old friend Victoria Woodhull, digging around in Belva's background unearthed a nose on a grindstone, mostly. And the indefatigable Miss Lockwood, as the press called her, had one last Hail Mary to throw. The current president, Ulysses S. Grant, was, in name, the president of the National University Law School. So she sent him a tartly worded letter asserting her right to receive her diploma and demanding it from him. Just a little note to the president. (laughs) That's some nerve. That's some nerve. But guess what? No official note back ever from the president of the United States. But ta-da! Within a week, the chancellor presented her with her long-awaited diploma. And she was admitted to the District Bar Association a few days later. Responses from the judges there ranged from, well, we'll treat you just like a man. Fair enough. Check. That's all I want. Two, I don't think lady lawyers will be a success. So bring as many as you want. They're all going to fail. But you know what? Who cared? Publicity and word of mouth got her all the clients she could handle. But when she showed up at a different court, a higher court, to which she had a case that had been referred, there was shock from that bunch. You're a woman. So, and they actually recessed court for a week to think about that. Came back. You're a married woman. Ah, you know, K.G. Belva had brought her husband. I'm here with my husband's permission, she said sweetly. 
You got to do what you got to do, ladies. Seriously, fight on their terms. But they had to recess a week again. And they came back and they're like, mm, I don't really think so. They said, quote, a woman is without legal capacity to take the office of attorney. So she had to hire a male attorney as a proxy to present her information to the court. I think that's very shameful. She also said he took three days to say what she could have done in an hour. And I don't think she was very happy with his performance. So she appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is where you have to go after this court. And she really examined the requirements, which are any attorney in good standing before the highest court of any state or territory for the space of three years shall be admitted to this court when presented by a member of the bar. Fine. Fair enough. She timed her appeal so she'd have three years by the time it got there. There was no mention in that language of the words man or male. She thought she had a simple open and shut case on the face of it, but she's no dummy. And she's quite familiar with weaseling, and they had blocked a similar case the year before. But still, when the Supreme Court came back with the following decision, quote, as this court knows no English precedent for the admission of women to the bar, it declines to admit unless there shall be a more extended public opinion or special legislation. Okay, her first response was no English precedent. Queen Eleanor, Queen Elizabeth and Countess of Pembroke, who sat on the bench with the other judges, Queen Victoria for a more timely scenario. Her second response was, more practically, special legislation, is it? So, enter a bill she wrote called H.R. 1077, brought before Congress with nearly identical wording to the requirements, you know, any attorney in good standing of the court for three years, blah, blah, blah. Although it did add the sentence of good moral character, which made me wonder if it was directly referencing Victoria Woodhull. I don't know why you would put that in there otherwise. So I don't know if that was a poke to her predecessor or not. I remember all the hours that I used to take a book with me behind the hanging clothes in my parents' closet, happy and cozy and lost in yet another world for hours. You can create these magic memories for your own kids with Literati. Literati is the subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids by sending great stories straight to you. Each Literati box contains five beautiful books based on a theme and contains exclusive original art and a personalized note to your child. How about this parent testimonial? I'm a delighted customer. My nine-year-old went from saying that she hates reading to regularly reading at night, thanks to Literati's monthly shipments. Literati actively curates stories that spark curiosity and soften the heart, which saves you hours of searching the store or scrolling through lists of mediocre books online, and Literati will beat the Amazon list price. You only keep your favorites and send back the rest for free. Join the largest kids book club in America with 1 million plus books delivered and tens of thousands of happy Literati families. For a limited time, go to literati.com chicks for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. To get it, you have to go to literati.com chicks for 25% off your first two orders. Literati.com chicks. So it helps to have connections, and Belva did. 
There were plenty of men who were impressed with her legal work in that district court, which had no problem with her. Two times the bill didn't pass in Congress. The third time it passed the House, but stalled at the last minute in the Senate. It got held over for another session. The newspapermen, remember, colleagues and friends of hers took up her case and the PR. And she said, I have been interested in many bills and have often appeared before committees of the Senate and the House, but this was by far the strongest lobbying that I have ever performed. And I just want you guys to note the casualness of the words many committees. I don't know if you remember from our Victoria Woodhill episode, but she went first and Everyone's brain probably shut down. And now we're at the point where she can say, Belvacan, I've presented at many committees. I just think that was a giant step forward. And that she stood on the back of Victoria Woodhull for. So Belva called on people. She wrote letters. She pulled in favors and practically bit her fingernails off. But in February 1879, President Rutherford B. Hayes signed her bill into law. The next month, she was admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. She is the first woman authorized to argue cases before the Supreme Court. So therefore, all the lower courts had to admit her too. It was a victory. Her business was doing absolutely great. She specialized in pension and back pay cases, and she also worked toward widows' property rights and custody rights, but she sure did everything. Her daughter and son-in-law worked in her office in the house, kind of to the front and side. She had other family members and actually some wards that were not related to her at all living in the house and also a niece that she eventually adopted. And you know, I'm sorry to say that Mr. Lockwood, husband, Mr. Lockwood died. So there is a bit of sorrow there. And I do feel sorry. You know, goodbye, Ezekiel. You were an awesome stand-up guy. And it is not often we get to hail the supportive spouse on this show. So a little salute for Ezekiel. We will not see him again. So Belva never stopped working toward equal rights for women, although she shared with Victoria Woodhull that her thought that voting would follow equality and not the other way around. She lobbied the Republican Party bigwigs during the 1880 and again in 1884 election to include a woman's suffrage plank in their platform. And when they declined, Belva started to look askance at women like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton that they were supporting the Republican candidate at all. And she said, we shall never have rights until we take them, nor respect until we command it. And so she was nominated as the presidential candidate for the Equal Rights Party with a woman newspaper publisher named Marietta Snow as her vice president running mate. Their platform was a wide ranging thing, which included such things as equal opportunity for women to hold public office at all levels, including the Supreme Court, balanced marriage and divorce laws, temperance, that's the one I don't agree with, citizenship for all Native Americans, and a policy of peace versus aggression. In addition, very importantly, I think, for a window into her true feelings, she publicly said as part of her platform that she felt like the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which limited or prevented immigration from China, was unchristian and unconstitutional. She was in favor of a more free immigration policy. She got a lot of pushback from the suffrage community. You are subjecting us to ridicule just as we're making progress. She is as respectable as can be, people. I, I don't know if there was still PTSD from the drama of Victoria Woodhull's campaign. Belva was even accused of running as a mere PR stunt to get more business for her own firm. 
but she saw it as the first practical movement in the history of women's suffrage, which makes me wonder if Belva also discarded Victoria Woodhull as the first presidential candidate also. Hmm. So newspapers kind of either treated her candidacy as a stunt, calling her such things as old Lady Lockwood. Uh, they were generally disrespectful, but honestly, they were kind of generally disrespectful to most presidential candidates. So I guess I could say she was treated fairly-ish. Although there were lots of cartoons, I'll put some on the Pinterest, that were pretty non-PC. There was one where you could lift her skirt and a male candidate was hiding there. Um, she thought, though, that a campaign cartoon depicting her was a prized possession. It's kind of like when you get to be in a crossword puzzle, like you've made it. So she felt like if she's well enough known to be lampooned in Puck magazine, then she kind of has made it and is doing the right thing. Uh, I have to say that Susan B. Anthony... In some behavior that disappoints me a little, said that Belva Lockwood spoke too much like a man and had dyed her hair. Such is the way of all strong-minded women. I am very disappointed in that. I'm sorry to say. That is not what I expect of Susan B. Anthony at all. But election day came, and even though there was some controversy about tossed away and not counted votes in a time when women couldn't cast a vote, although they could... In three territories, but these territories didn't vote in that election, so that didn't help her. But even though there were no women votes in this election, she got nearly 5,000 official votes. No electoral votes, so that's a bummer. Although the electors of Indiana left a, oh, haha, I was going to say jerky note. I actually wrote jokey note, but it was jerky too. As a joke, they left a note. We're going to give all of our um, electoral votes to Belva Lockwood because she's so fabulous on blah, blah, blah. It was like a stupid jokey note between them, but they left it on the table and Belva actually seized hold of it and kind of pressed a little bit to have those votes counted as her electoral victories because her goal, of course, was not to get the presidency. She knew that would never happen. Her goal was to get one electoral vote. And I'm sorry to say she didn't get any real ones. So even after she didn't make it, there were parades of men dressed as Mother Hubbard, an old character with a bun and an old calico dress and a broom. Ah, such comedy. What passed for comedy in these days? I don't know. They called her campaign the Busted Sideshow. But you know what? Belva Lockwood saw this as simply the price of doing business. You're the first one, in her mind, you're the first one, you're going to get a certain amount of smear campaign at you. Doesn't bother me. She's so level. She's so level-headed. She became very famous, very famous, and parlayed this into both an extremely lucrative public speaking career and a serious involvement in human rights and peace activism and women's suffrage. She did run again in 1888 to absolutely no fanfare, and as far as I can tell, no official votes. So weird. I guess... I guess the novelty factor had worn off and there really was no support from women in this endeavor, which was, of course, a bummer. But she had a lot going on, a lot going for her. She won a giant case, a multi-million dollar case that she argued on behalf of the Eastern Cherokee people against the United States government, for example. She's not working on traffic ticket cases here. She served on the Nobel Peace Prize nominating committee. She was a member of the Universal Peace Union and a delegate to peace conventions all over Europe. When she was 63, 
she headed the National Convention of Women Lawyers and 200 women attended. I mean, look around. Look around at your influence in this room. If that's not satisfaction, I don't know what is. She wrote treatises on eliminating capital punishment, establishing public defenders for the poor, and, of course, equal rights for women, even though the official suffrage organizations had largely just told her, you know, talk to the hand, we're over you. It's sort of a shame they couldn't reconcile themselves to her kind of power. Belva and Victoria Woodhill shared the view that women in the movement, quote, talk too much instead of acting. She was so well thought of by several presidents that she was a trusted counselor on a number of issues. And in 1909, when she was 79, Syracuse University granted her an honorary doctorate of law. Belva Lockwood died on May 19, 1917, of, quote, maladies consistent with the onset of old age. I don't know what that is exactly. She was 81. Three years she died before the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Her life. So many firsts. So much drive. So much determination. I wish I had half of it. And we wanted to make sure that you all knew about her. Because honestly, if you ask 100 people, 98 of them will have no idea who you're talking about. Might even be higher. So let me give you two books to start you on your exploration of Belleville Lockwood. One is a children's book called Ballots for Belva, The True Story of a Woman's Race for the Presidency by Sudipta Barden Qualen, and a biography I liked called Belva Lockwood, The Woman Who Would Be President by Jill Norgren. I'll leave you with this. When asked if she thought a woman would ever be president, this is what Belva said. I look to see women in the United States Senate and the House of Representatives. If a woman demonstrates that she is fitted to be president, she will someday occupy the White House. It will be entirely on her own merits, however. No movement will place her there simply because she is a woman. It will come if she proves herself fit for the position. Bye! Keep on the path and I'll be there on the path and I'll be there Even rules should seem fair Keep on the path and I'll be there If you take it easy If you take it slow Find out the hard way Long way to go If you take it easy If you take it slow Find out the hard way, long way to go. Keep by the fire, you'll stay warm. Keep by the fire, you'll stay warm. Hold those thoughts, and the shapes will form. Keep by the fire, you'll stay warm. If you take it easy. If you take it slow, find out the hard way, long way to go. If you take it easy, if you take it slow, find out the hard way, long way to go. And here's your 30-second summary. 100 years after Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to run for U.S. president, 
50 years after the 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote, although some states began to put up stumbling blocks in the way of women of color, 44 years before the first female nominee of a major political party ran for president, and within a decade of Jim Crow laws being banned and voting for all female U.S. citizens was made possible, Shirley Chisholm, a black woman from Brooklyn, ran for the U.S. presidency. Hi, it's Susan. Beckett and I had decided to kind of divide and conquer so that we could cover a couple more women who had run for the U.S. presidency long before Hillary Clinton. So let's talk about Shirley Chisholm. First, let me drop her into history a little bit. In 1972, in the United States, a woman could not report workplace discrimination based on being pregnant, attend a U.S. military academy or fight in combat, serve on juries, get credit cards in their name without a man to co-sign. And in 1972, Shirley Chisholm announced her candidacy for president of the United States. Shirley Anita St. Hill was born in Brooklyn, New York on November 30, 1924. She was the first of four daughters to Charles and Ruby St. Hill. Charles and Ruby were both part of a wave of Caribbean immigrants who had left crop failure and famine behind and also sun and soft breezes for the United States. Specifically, the people of Barbados were congregating in Brooklyn, New York. Now, Brooklyn has a bit of a milder temperature than most people think, but it was no Barbados. Charles was born in British Guyana and orphaned as a teen. He lived all over the West Indies, including Barbados, and there he briefly met a young teenager named Ruby Seals. But he headed to the United States for a job in 1923 and settled in Brooklyn, where there was an enclave of Barbadians. Now, Charles had stopped school in the fifth grade, but he was well-read and he was very self-educated. Ruby's grandfather had saved money to bring Ruby from the Barbados to live in New York. And once Charles was there, they reconnected one night at a Barbadian social club. What followed was a quick yet formal courtship. And within a year, they'd been married and Shirley was born. Charles was an unskilled laborer who had landed a steady job as a baker's assistant. Ruby was skilled as a seamstress, but first Shirley, then her sister Odessa, and then her sister Muriel in rapid succession made it impossible for Ruby to hold a steady job. She did take in some sewing, but with three toddlers to keep her busy, Mama was very, very busy. And young Shirley, she was talking very early. She was a very strong-willed child, and she added to that busyness. Ruby was busy, very busy, impossibly busy. So Charles and Ruby made a very painful decision. They wanted their daughters to have a good life. Their goals in life were simple. They wanted them to have an education and they wanted to have a house. But to make both of those things happen, they needed money. And having the kids at home was making that really impossible. So when Shirley was Almost four, they decided to send the girls to live with Ruby's mother in Barbados. It was going to be just for a little while so Charles and, and Ruby could save some money and provide that education at home that they wanted for them. Ruby booked ship passage for herself and her three daughters. There's one story that I couldn't get enough corroboration on to say is fact, but it's very dramatic, so I hope it was true. Shirley had booked passage for them on a ship, but mere days before they were scheduled to set sail, Ruby had a very strange feeling, and she rebooked their passage on another ship at another time. That first ship, it sunk. Now, like I said, I don't know if that's a true story, but I will tell you that searching shipwrecks of the 1920s made me realize 
realize the danger of travel at that time. I always thought it was get on a boat, arrive. It was the safest form of travel, but holy cow, there was a lot of shipwrecks. So here's the fact. Ruby and her daughter sailed from New York City to Barbados so that the St. Hills could provide the life they wanted for their daughter. Now, why didn't they all go? Barbados was very impoverished at the time, and they had a greater chance of working and earning money in New York City. Now, Ruby had stayed down in Barbados for a few months to get the girls situated with her mom, and then she left to go work the dream. Grandma Seal ran a very tight ship. She lived on a farm that provided meals for the extended family that lived there. Uh, They grew sweet potatoes, corn, root vegetables. They had chicken, goats, and cows. Uh, I did say it was a farm. It was a farm. It fed the family, but it also provided a little bit of income, but not enough to support them. So Grandma had to work as a domestic while Ruby's teenage sister held down the fort during the day. The girls helped around the farm. They were all given chores, but please, this is Barbados. They did go to the beach a lot. They roamed the farm. They went into the village to shop. The whole household was a multi-generational, loving, and from all accounts, fairly idyllic situation. At the age of four, Shirley's grandma decided it was time for precocious Shirley to attend elementary school. Now, one of the things in the pro column for sending the girls to Barbados is that Charles and Ruby believed that the early childhood education was far superior there because it was based on a British model than in New York. City, where it was a more lack, casual environment as far as they were concerned. Shirley, in later years, bragged about her early childhood education, and she said it was extremely wonderful. And as you'll find out, she would know about good education. In a one-room schoolhouse with kids from age four up through seventh grade, Ruby studied reading, writing, arithmetic, geography, British history. Remember, Barbados was colonized in the 1600s by Britain. But she also learned some practical things. She learned needlework. She learned economics. She had morality lessons in school. So her education provided her a very solid base. Her grandmother taught her self-respect. She taught her to stand up and be proud and firm. Later in life, Shirley said that her grandmother taught her, quote, strength, dignity, and love. Her early life in Barbados, it was a country that was going through a bit of a political class unrest. So that taught how to stand up for what she believed in. She saw examples of it all around her every day, every day for six years. Ruby and Charles had thought they would leave them with their grandmother for a short period, but it was six full years before they could bring their daughters back to New York. In that time, they had another daughter and the U.S. was sunk into the Great Depression. When Shirley arrived in New York, Shirley was 10 and it was easy for her to later recall the harsh transition from barefoot in the sunshine of Barbados in a rural area to the cold, populated, and very urban New York City. Home was a tenement house in Brooklyn. It was kind of a shotgun house. One room led into another room, led into another room. There was four rooms like that, all heated by a coal stove that was in the kitchen. That was the only heating they had. No hot water. The neighborhood was predominantly white and Jewish. So little Shirley, with her West Indies accent and her British-based education, was a minority at her school. But at that time, in her autobiography, she remembers it as not being a very big deal. She said, quote, she was not particularly conscious of it. If anything, Shirley and her sisters stood out because of their very strict parents. They ran as tight a ship as Shirley's grandmother had back in Barbados, and the girls were used to it. So it wasn't, you know, it was just an easy transition for them. But they had chores. Mom would check their homework every night. They held the nightly family supper table sacred. They'd sit around and talk about their days. Shirley's parents would ask her what she learned, and 
Unfortunately, Shirley had been dropped down a couple grades when she entered school. Her American history and her American geography was really non-existent. So when she was struggling to learn these things, she would complain and they would tell her that she needs to learn to use her brain and that her brain was the only thing that was going to help her survive in this world. Her parents, they didn't have a lot of money, but they scrimped to provide things like movies every once in a while. Nancy Drew books at Christmas. Nancy Drew began in 1930, in case you didn't know, like me. Uh, They also scrimped to provide a secondhand piano and piano lessons for Shirley. That's a lot of saving for a family that's living on an extremely tight budget in the Depression. But life in the tenement house was was good. It was a good uh, upbringing. It was a good time for Shirley. But when the family moved to Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood, the first time in her life, with prejudice and discrimination, Shirley was really a latchkey kid. Her parents both worked very hard, long hours, and Shirley was in charge during the day. Papa was working at the time in a burlap factory. Mama was working as a domestic. But like I had said earlier, they were extremely strict and had high expectations for their daughters. <laughs> Shirley's forms of rebellion as a teenager, really radical. They included playing jazz music on the piano by ear, by the way, and letting boys walk her home without her parents knowing. Now, because of her high IQ and excellent study habits, Shirley was accepted at the highly regarded Girls High. It brought in girl students from all over Brooklyn who were academically advanced. There she studied, this is just part of the list, Latin, Greek, botany, physics, ancient and modern history. The list goes on and on. And it was an excellent education. Shirley excelled. By the end of high school, she had earned not only a French medal, the vice presidency of the Girls Honor Society, and scholarship offers from both Vassar and Oberlin College. These are really good schools, but they were only going to cover her tuition. She still would have had to pay her room and board. And for economics reasons, the family just couldn't afford to send her. So she enrolled in tuition-free Brooklyn College and never regretted the choice. Now, acceptance into Brooklyn College isn't as easy as you would think. It's not like a community college where everybody is except girl students had to have better grades and have score higher on an app than boys to be accepted. And once there, they had to deal with prejudice because they were women, that they weren't as smart as men, and that they were only in college to get a husband. Now, instead of being a minority for just her heritage, Shirley was a minority for her gender, too. She had wanted to become a teacher. That was her goal. She felt that there were very few options for her career-wise because of that, her gender and because of her heritage. She thought that that was it. That was where she had to go. Teaching was it. She majored in psychology and she minored in Spanish. So when she when she graduated college, she was fluent in Spanish. While there, she helped form a black woman's social group because, big surprise, they had a hard time being accepted into the white groups. And they thought, we don't need them. We'll make a better group for ourselves. And they did. She also joined the Debate Society and several political clubs. You know how we all have that one teacher who sees our gifts, our value, and our contributions, and they nudge us down the right path? Mine was my AP English teacher, Mr. Stearns, and Shirley's was her political science professor, Louis Warsoff, who suggested in one of their many long and deep talks that she go into politics. Later in life, Shirley would say, of my two handicaps, being female put more obstacles in my path than being black. But in this case, she thought both of them were obstacles that she couldn't get around to going into politics. And she really did like education. 
She graduated with honors in 1946, but struggled to find a job. She was not only being denied positions because of her color, she was denied positions because she looked very young. She was this tiny woman, barely 100 pounds, and had a very youthful appearance. She didn't look intimidating. She didn't look like she could take control of a classroom. Finally, she landed a job as a teacher's aide in a daycare center. It might not have been the type of exactly the type of work that she had hoped for, but she loved it. Her gender, her skin color, and her petite and young looks actually helped her in that early childhood environment. They weren't an issue at all. She decided during that very first job that she really was going to pursue a career in early childhood education. So she enrolled in Columbia College and took night classes for four years to earn her master's degree. During the day she went to class, She studied at night, and she became active in local political clubs. She might not have thought she had a future in politics, but she was drawn to politics. She was drawn to what it could do for the community. One of the political clubs that she belonged to put her in charge of collecting and decorating cigar boxes for the raffle tickets and money they would earn at an annual fundraising party. It was the women's job in this group to throw this party. Even though it brought money into the club, the women were not given any budget for the party. Shirley realized how wrong that was. She stood up for the women against the male leadership on behalf of the overworked and underappreciated women of the group. She was able to secure a budget for that party, and it made a record amount of profit for them. So that was her first political victory. How about her personal victories? Well, remember those strict parents the ones that prohibited their daughters from dating in high school. Shirley never really dated until after college. She was still living with her parents, and her first serious relationship lasted two full years, despite her parents objecting to the older man who 24-year-old Shirley became engaged to. This is a sign, kids. Listen to your parents. Shirley ended the relationship when she learned that her fiancé was already married, and he had a family in Jamaica. And the job he had... It was immigration fraud and blackmail. Shortly after they broke it off, he was arrested and deported back to Jamaica. But Shirley was heartbroken. It was that unique pain of your first love. It's such a cliche, but she's saying she hated men. She wanted no part of them. She stopped eating. Isn't it nice to know that your heroes in life have the same experiences? I mean, we've all had that. We know that feeling. But like a lot of us who discover as we climb out of that depression that we're stronger, that we're wiser, and eventually we love again. And Shirley's next love was a keeper. He was a private investigator named Conrad Chisholm. Because Shirley was so busy and because she had sworn off men, Conrad really had to put the full court press on her, but she finally warmed to him. She realized that Conrad was different than a lot of the men that she knew and a lot of the men of the time, chiefly in that he believed in Shirley as a person, not as somebody to partner him and support him. He supported her. He encouraged her. He put her ambition front and center without putting a shadow on her of his own. And he cooked because Shirley couldn't even boil water. Later, Conrad would say that he was the, quote, wonder man behind a good woman. And everything that I read indicates that that was the case. He was an incredible support for Shirley. They were married when Shirley was 25 and settled near her parents in Brooklyn. It might have been a little unique for the time in that she was allowed to keep working 
allowed. Yeah, I know. But career-wise, Shirley worked upward at the child care center. First, she was a teacher's aide, then a teacher, then an assistant director, then the director. Then she was promoted to director of a large center in Manhattan. And then she worked as a consultant for the New York City Bureau of Child Welfare. So Shirley's personal life, her love life, check in good order. Her career, check in excellent order. But she still had this passion for politics and no outlet for her. So she kind of started leaning towards that. Shirley and Conrad never had children. She had the time, she had the energy, and she had the intellect and desire to go into politics. She wondered why predominantly black Bedford Stuyvesant and New York City in general had only white men in political positions. That's a really good question. And the answer? Each voting district was politically powered by a Democratic party group in that district. It was those clubs again. And the clubs were run by white men who did a fine job of keeping white men in power and black men and women marginalized. It kept happening again and again. Finally, Shirley had had enough. She broke ranks. She broke tradition. She spoke up, trying to get her way. Sometimes she did. Sometimes she didn't. But she was labeled a troublemaker very often because she was trying to shake up the boat. You know how you have to learn the system before you can fiddle with the system? You have to learn rules before you can break them? Shirley was learning the rules, and she saw that they needed to be broken. She realized they had to have proper representation of the demographics of the area. Now, how was she rocking the boat? Oh, with crazy questions like, why can't Bedford Stuyvesant have as much police protection as other parts of the city? She was going nowhere locally, so she cast a bigger net and got involved in clubs. She wasn't getting too far in the local clubs, and she kind of drifted away from them to become involved in clubs that cast a larger net, like the New York chapter of the NAACP and the League of Women Voters. She worked locally to bring a voice to women and to try and overthrow the white-dominated political machine that prevailed in her district. That was her mission. She even worked a little bit with Eleanor Roosevelt and Harry Belafonte, who came in to support a campaign that she was working on to put an African-American named Tom Jones into the New York State Assembly. Tom lost his first run, but Shirley and her team doubled down on canvassing. They, they upped their efforts to get people registered to vote. The campaign platform consisted of things that just seemed fairly obvious to us. They wanted a minimum wage for factory workers. They wanted more jobs for the Black and Puerto Rican community. And they were demanding their district be represented in the New York State Assembly by a Black man. They wanted to break through all that white male-dominated power. The second time was a charm, and Tom Jones was elected to represent their district in the New York State Assembly. Two years later, he decided he'd up his game, too, and he ran for a judgeship, which left his seat open. That's when Shirley wedged herself in a door that had been closed previously to women. She used her own money, her 10 years of political experience, her years of community activism, her valuable contacts that she'd met along the way, her natural leadership, and quite frankly, her presence. She was this woman. She was little. She would, you'd think, oh, she's not going to have much power. But once she started talking, you were drawn to her. And I'm going to put some uh, YouTube videos on our show notes for this because 
because you really have to listen to her talk. She has a slight speech impediment and a slight accent of the West Indies, not a New York accent. And she is a powerful speaker. Those debate clubs that she did in college really, really paid off. As she's running for that position in the state legislature, she did meet quite a bit of opposition. Why would a woman want to do a man's job? I mean, it was 1964. Women didn't do jobs like that, but blacks hadn't done them either, and that happened, so why couldn't Shirley? She was elected by a 70% margin. She announced her victory in the streets wearing a red cape and speaking in both English and Spanish because that's what her constituents spoke. She suggested that she could have won by a bigger margin if the black community had supported her more, which kind of ticked off some members of her base. But battles like that were just a warm-up for what happened to her once she went to the state capitol. There, she was the only woman of six black assembly members. It was that battle again, her old battle of the established boys club. After a little bit of a rough start, because like anything, in any new job, you're going to have a little... Mm, transition time when you have to learn those rules again. But during the next four years, she spent her days in committee meetings working to get bills passed into state law. At night, she wasn't into that boys club, and that's okay because they weren't inviting her anyway. But she took her work to her hotel room. On the weekend, she'd go home to be with Conrad. It's a three-hour drive from Albany to Brooklyn or a four-hour train ride. In the summer, they had a wonderful tradition and they went to islands in the West Indies every summer. But that was her life for the next four years. In those four years, she introduced 50 bills and eight of them passed. That doesn't sound like a lot, but actually it's a really good record, especially for a freshman. The causes that she championed Well, there's still ones that we have on our political platforms today. They were programs to help disadvantaged youth attend college. They were programs for unemployment insurance for domestic servants. There's programs for maternity leave and a job to come back to for teachers. And because education was so important to her, she worked very hard to improve the funding of public education and child care. Now, redistricting in New York City made her have to run for her position three times in the next four years, But she won handily each time. And in 1968, a position in U.S. Congress opened up. Thanks to those same reorganizations that made her have to rerun and be reelected. She'd worked on a local level, worked on a state level. And at 44, Shirley Chisholm knew she could work at a government level. She'd been a part of the civil rights movement of the early 60s. She'd been a part of the early second wave of feminism at the same time in a very high profile position as a vice president of the New York chapter of the National Organization for Women. She learned to play and win with the big boys in the state legislature and learned how to live and succeed in an environment where partying and chauvinism put up hurdles for her at every step. But she had to leap over those hurdles to get her life work done and prove that she had guts and belonged to no one but the people. So it seemed natural that she would look higher than state government in 1968 Shirley Chisholm became the first black woman elected to Congress. Wouldn't it be cool if it was that easy? Poof! Shirley Chisholm, you're the first African-American congresswoman. What are you going to do now? Yeah, it wasn't that easy. First, she had to realize that there were more Puerto Rican and black voters in her district than whites. So that was two things in her favor. She first had to secure the Democratic Party nomination. So how did she do that? The old fa- It's old-fashioned way to us now, but it was how politics was done at the time. She hit 
the streets. She campaigned in grocery stores and housing projects. She talked to the people. One night, a woman came and knocked on her door and handed her an envelope filled with coins. She collected them for Shirley's campaign and told her, quote, We'll make it together, you and I. Shirley was so touched, she started to cry, not because of the $9.62 that were in the envelope. She felt, quote, women like that are worth more to me than the opinions of 1,000 politicians. And that was kind of the backbone of everything she did. The people were more important than the politics. She would drive in this campaign truck through the streets saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is fighting Shirley Chisholm coming through. And she would stop and she would talk to people. And that's why she had things happen to her, like that woman giving her the $9.62 in coins. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, but I recently discovered that it may just be the number one meal kit of my street too. Not only does my family get two or three HelloFresh meals a week, but my next door neighbors, they get five or six meals from HelloFresh every week. And it's easy to see why. HelloFresh cuts out the stressful meal planning and, of course, the grocery store trips because everything is delivered right to our houses. They send you recipes with pre-proportioned ingredients, so it makes cooking fun. And if there's one that your family loves, like my family loved the cheesy chipotle barbecue quesadillas we had the other night, my male folk took one bite and they insisted that I make it again. And I can, because you can keep the recipes or or you can get them when they come back up as a HelloFresh option. You can make HelloFresh the number one meal kit in your house. Just go to HelloFresh.com slash 80 History Chicks. That's the number 80 and then History Chicks. And use code 80 History Chicks to get a total of $80 off across five boxes. Now that does include free shipping on your first box. That's HelloFresh.com slash 80HistoryChicks and use code 80HistoryChicks to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Shirley used every marketing tchotchke that was available to her. Bumper stickers, pins, posters, bags. Everything was printed with her campaign slogan, which was Shirley Chisholm, unbought and unbossed. Oh, God, I love that so much. This is just the primaries, folks. But she used her speaking skills, her confidence, her flair for fashion, and her unintimidating physical presence to speak to people at picnics and parties instead of behind the doors, instead of good old boy politicking to get into positions. She was, like she said, for the people, a person for the people. And she won the primary. She even carried the four white sections of her district. Her Republican opponent was named James Farmer. He was a career politician. He was a civil rights leader in the South and on a national scale. And he didn't even live in Brooklyn. But this is who she was competing with for the congressional seat. She was so fired up for that. I mean, he didn't even live there. It was a political move for him. Simple, pure and simple. He wasn't running for the people. He was running for himself. Unfortunately, during the campaign, Shirley was sidelined for weeks with a benign tumor in her pelvis that had to be removed. It was six weeks in bed while Farmer badmouthed her all over. He was running a real He-Man-inspired campaign. He was a man. He was a 
man who did politics. He was a man who'd do politics for you. So at one point, even though she's still weak and even though she's still under doctor's orders to stay in bed, she stuffed her clothes with a towel to make up for the weight, the 17 pounds that she had lost. She got Conrad and a couple of friends to hold her up so she get, could get into that sound truck again and tell her world that she was up and fighting. Because Farmer had been a nationally visible civil rights activist, and because he was a man, the media followed him and really ignored her. They had actual comments like, quote, who are you, a little school teacher who happened to go to the assembly? The New York Times even ran a headline that said, Farmer and Woman in Lively Bedford-Stuyvesant Race. Ouch. But then there was the, oh, no, he didn't moment. Farmer went heavy on the macho angle. He said government was a man's job. Oh, what's up, Farmer? Didn't you know that women outnumbered men in that district? So Shirley went to the women. She went to PTA meetings. She went to bridge games. She went back to the grocery stores. She rallied her female supporters with a battle cry that said, quote, I am a woman. You are a woman. Let's show Farmer that woman power can beat him. And then she said it in Spanish. <laughs> she kicked his hiney in the election. James Farmer became the first black man to lose a congressional seat to a black woman. So in the 100 years since Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to address Congress, now a black woman was a member of Congress and Shirley was hurled into the public spotlight. Ebony Magazine, Vogue, the New York Times finally learned her name. Everyone wanted to talk with her, meet with her, shake her hand. Even when the Chisholms went on a well-deserved vacation to the Caribbean, people had heard of her. The only one that hadn't heard of her, it seems, was when they returned and tried to buy a house. That real estate agent pulled a racist move to prevent them from purchasing the house. Later, he came racing back and said, why didn't you tell me you're a member of Congress? <laughs> I'm pretty sure Shirley told him why. Now, I would love to tell you that Shirley went to Washington and started to get busy. But what happened is she ran into roadblocks. She was a freshman member of Congress. And so she was kind of low woman on the totem pole. Every congressperson is assigned to committees. And instead of being assigned to a committee that she was interested in, that she had experience in, like, say, oh, I don't know, education and labor or any of a long list that she had written up that she could help her constituents, she was placed on the Agriculture Committee. All right, maybe it's a stretch, but food stamps, food distribution, maybe. However, then she was placed on the Forestry and Rural Development Committee, and she went nuts. Remember that protocol that she broke back in Albany? Well, it was protocol on steroids in Washington. Freshman members were never supposed to speak on the floor unless they were addressed, and she was never addressed. And she got tired of it because she wanted to do what she came to Washington to do. So she kind of pulled a fast one on the floor of Congress to introduce a resolution for her to be reassigned. She kind of just busted in, took the microphone and said, look, I need to be reassigned. She was to Veterans Affairs. Okay, she said, there's a lot more veterans in my district than trees. Shirley spent her first four years knowing and working to be a leader for women and for African-Americans. She opposed the Vietnam War. She enforced anti-discrimination laws. She worked for equal rights for women, and she didn't make 
a lot of friends on the far right when she supported repealing anti-abortion laws. Abortion was very dangerous at the time, and women were dying. Her focus really was on women. She wanted to support working women and working mothers. These are all issues that still come up in the politics of the 20-teens, except maybe you swap out Vietnam for ISIS or Afghanistan or whatever conflict we're in. This was a time when a woman couldn't refuse to have sex with her husband. This was a time when a woman couldn't even run the Boston Marathon. So working to support women was a very uphill battle. And battle uphill surely did. She figured that at some point, her refusal to compromise and her refusal to play play politics as usual would end her congressional career. She thought that her pointing out the ridiculousness of some traditions, like how many money was spent on meetings or elevator protocol for Congress, who could ride the elevator and when, this was time and energy that didn't need to be spent and could be spent on improving things for people of the United States. And they weren't. And she was mad about it. She ran her office differently than other congressmen. She staffed it with women and half of them were black. She tried to shake things up when she could. And after she attended the very first meeting of the National Women's Political Caucus in Washington, she had a new target. Big names were there. It was the feminist movement of the time, Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Betty Friedan. And the goal that was decided was that they wanted to increase female presence so that, quote, it will not be a joke by 1976 that a woman might run for president. Shirley took that mission to heart, and she kind of floated an idea to see if there was any interest in having her run for president. She knew she lacked the funding. She knew she lacked the support from the black political community who thought that a black man would make a more successful candidate. And the little black matriarch who goes around and messing things up wasn't the candidate that they could support. But even with all these things against her, she announced her run for the presidency with very little money in her coffers. She had total about $300,000. But that's compared to the millions that the more likely candidates had. She didn't have the money for the nationwide media campaign that she would need. She didn't have the time or the money to travel all over the country. She was only able to visit 11 states. She might not have had a chance. She knew that she didn't have a chance. But her mission was a success in proving and paving the way for the very thing she stated in a speech when she announced her candidacy, quote, to repudiate the ridiculous notion that the American people will not vote for a candidate simply because he is white or because she is not a male. Her campaign was pretty unorganized. It was understaffed and underfinanced. She kept trying to work in Congress as her day job while campaigning on the side, and both suffered because of it. Even though it it was really unlikely, there was still a smear campaign against her that eventually was traced back to Richard Nixon. There was a press release that was released by a source who claimed that she was a transvestite and a schizophrenic and had spent time in a mental hospital. Is this the kind of woman that we want running the United States? At the 1972 Democratic Convention in Miami, thanks to some backroom deals that worked both in her favor and against her, she actually earned 151 delegate votes. George McGovern won the Democratic nomination, and that November, he lost handily to incumbent President Richard Nixon. Afterwards, Shirley said, 
quote, I ran because somebody had to do it first. In this country, everybody is supposed to be able to run for president, but that's never really been true. I ran because most people think that the country is not ready for a black candidate, not ready for a woman candidate. After the election, Shirley returned her energy to her congressional duties. She toured as a speaker, and even with all her history and credentials, she still had to fight battles to earn respect. For instance, she was at a Democratic committee meeting, and one man was calling all the men Mr., but her Shirley. When she pointed it out, he said, "'What's the matter? You and I have been intimate for years.'" She snapped back, we don't have to let the public know it. And that's when she became Mrs. Chisholm. For the rest of her years in Congress, she continued to champion for equal pay, for equal work, for good working conditions, for supporting working women, and for good quality daycare. Shirley Chisholm had told her friends that she didn't want a political career. She wanted to teach. She wanted to lecture. She wanted to write. But she didn't retire from Congress until 1982. That's 14 years. And granted, the year that she retired, she probably would not have won the re-election. But that's still a very impressive history. And she left a trail of positive change. Unfortunately, the years of long-distance relationship and being Shirley Chisholm's, quote, wife, Conrad and Shirley divorced amicably. She then remarried a New York businessman named Arthur Hardwick, who she may have begun dating before her divorce was final. But that's gossip undignified for this. <clears throat> who am I kidding? She lectured. She was a professor of politics at Mount Holyoke Women's College in Massachusetts and at Spelman College in Atlanta. She, at one point, shared a stage with Rosa Parks when they both received honorary degrees from Mount Holyoke in 1981. She worked on political campaigns for the Democratic Party. She campaigned for Jesse Jackson in both 84 and 88. And then, like a lot of good New Yorkers do, she retired to the Palm Coast of Florida. On January 1st, 2005, at the age of 80, Shirley Chisholm died of a stroke. Eleven years after her death, the first black president of the United States, Barack Obama, awarded Shirley posthumously the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She left behind a legacy of social change, the memories of a petite woman with a slight accent and a speech impediment who stood up to the status quo and wasn't afraid to cause a little trouble to cause change. And you know what? She left us a lot of amazing quotes. I, I fell into a rabbit hole watching her videos on YouTube, watching her speak. She's mesmerizing. And the words, what she says is just so powerful. She said, tremendous amounts of talent are lost to our society just because that talent wears a skirt. And then one that we need to remember during every election cycle, rhetoric never won a revolution yet. As for media, I'm going to put all these up on our show notes for this episode, but I would recommend these three books. The Highest Glass Ceiling by Ellen Fitzpatrick. It covers several women who ran for the presidency. Um, Unbought and Unbossed by Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm, A Catalyst for Change by Barbara Winslow. Now, there's a 2005 PBS documentary called Shirley Chisholm, Unbought and Unbossed. I had a really hard time finding it. I kept hearing, reading all these good things about it, but only snippets of it were on YouTube. I couldn't get it on PBS, and my library didn't even have it. So if you find it, you should grab it and watch it, because I understand it is really exceptional. And I have to say, one of her unbought and unbossed campaign posters is at the new National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, because 
It's so cool. We haven't been yet, but we really like to go and we love it. If you, if you guys go, please share a picture on Instagram and hashtag it history chicks field trip so we can all share in your experiences. Well, this is the last episode in our series on U.S. female presidential candidates. There were so many more. In 1968, Charlene Mitchell, she was a black woman uh, who represented the Communist Party and was on the ballot in two states. So she actually gets the honor. In addition to Victoria Woodhull and Belleville Lockwood, like we had talked about, there was also Margaret Chase Smith in 1964. Patsy Mink ran the same year as Shirley Chisholm. She was from Hawaii. She didn't get as far as Shirley did in the race, but she was definitely an also-ran. There's Ellen McCormick, Sonia Johnson, Pat Schroeder in the 80s. In the 2000s, there's Elizabeth Dole, Carol Mosley Braun, Michelle Bachman, Carly Fiorina, and in 2008 and 2016, Hillary Clinton. So there's a lot of women out there, a lot of rabbit holes for you to fall into, and we'll give you some links to some of them in our show notes and also on our Pinterest board. I'm going to end you with a quote from a video series by the National Visionary Leadership Project. Oh my gosh, this is so good. There's 250 of these videos by um, African American elders, I think is the official title, but they're all on YouTube and they are amazing. The question is how I want to be remembered. And her answer, I want to be remembered, not that I was the first black woman to be elected to the Congress not as the first black woman to have made a bid for the presidency of the United States, but as a black woman who lived in the 20th century and who dared to be herself. I want to be remembered as a catalyst for change in America. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked our series on the women presidential candidates of days gone by, tell a few friends or, hey, tell any woman in government that you know. Spread the word. Or leave a review for us on iTunes. Susan would like me to clarify that Shirley majored in sociology, not psychology, and that links to the PBS special that she mentioned are at our website, thehistorychicks.com. The closing music is Worth the Fight by Marie Hines. Don't circle around the task at hand Or take a fall when you can stand Disregard the reprimand Needing more than second hand There's bigger pictures to paint More horizons to chase Something better in searching Reaching, burning Bleed in black and white Deeper oceans to swim Unpredictable whims And you're learning, you're learning Freedom's worth the fight
suffocating. There's bigger pictures to paint, more horizons to chase, something better in searching, reaching, burning, bleeding black and white. 